Man, it is such a pleasure to be back here and to see everyone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so many of our college students from RUF uh, are here, which is really fun. Other students that I know that are involved with Young Life and other ministries at the UNCW campus, just families that I know from um, growing up here at the church and having our family be here. So this really doesn't feel like a, an away game for me. This is like a home game. Um, uh, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles or on your phones or, you know, whatever you keep the scriptures on to, um, Exodus chapter 20. And then if you would put a finger in, um, Nehemiah eight, we'll be in both of those mainly in Exodus. And then I'm going to flip over to Nehemiah. This semester in our RUF large group meetings, which are just when we get together on Tuesday nights on campus, and it's basically like a, I would describe it as like an evangelistic Bible study that has some, uh, some prayer, some elements of liturgy, like a, like a confession of sin like we've done here, which was so helpful. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. Like my soul needed that. Uh, we sing some songs, and then uh, typically there's a brief message, some teaching on uh, a passage of Scripture. And this semester, we're going through the Ten Commandments. And of all of the commandments that we've uh, touched on so far, this is the one that when we looked at it, I've got the most feedback from my students about, both like positive and negative feedback. And it was the most convicting for me, I think, uh, to study and to preach. And so uh, we'll look at this idea of rest, both in Exodus, when God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to his people after rescuing them out of Egypt, and then another idea of what holy resting looks like from Nehemiah chapter 8. And the I don't know how much familiarity you all have with the Ten Commandments or just the idea of the Sabbath in general, but odds are some of you, when you hear about you know, this command to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, some of you have in mind um, you know, very stern religious people kind of looking over their shoulder and making no one does anything fun on Sunday. And actually, when you get into what the Bible says about the deep kind of rest that God commends and commands on the Sabbath, I think you see that it's actually as much more freeing, expansive, life-giving thing. Uh, this woman, Jen Pollock Michelle, wrote a book called A Habit Called Faith that we've shared with some of our students. I think it's tremendous. But this is what she says about God's law and walking with God in a life of faith. She says, faith is not primarily about forbiddance, but abundance. Not primarily about prohibition, but invitation. Moses reminds the people that obedience isn't the path of deprivation, but the path of life. The great paradox of the Bible is that the commands of God make spacious places of our lives. They don't limit our freedom so much as they make true freedom really possible. So in that spirit of spaciousness and enabling true freedom, let's turn to God's word in the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you so labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then turning to Nehemiah chapter 8, we learn about another holy day here. This is when um, they've rediscovered the law after rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, all that great kind of leadership lesson stuff at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. And then they're renewing the covenant. God's people are coming back in to figure out like how to rebuild an obedient community that honors God. And it says this, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. This is Nehemiah 8, starting in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would we understand these words that you declare to us? Would you enable me like these teachers of the law of old, to read your word, to give the sense of it. And Lord, would you, by your spirit, dwelling here among us and in us, would you apply these things to our heart? Would you open up our hands and empower us to live differently because of what we've heard today? We are so desperately in need of your enabling grace, Father, both to help us to hear and to help us to change and to help us to do. So we, we come to you expectantly in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, one of the reasons why I think this particular command, which for those of you who are keeping track is the fourth commandment, resonated with my students is that the, I think the typical mode for most UNCW students that I've met, it's the same way I was when I was in college, and it's the same way that I am now, honestly, is that you, and you tend to treat your time like um, a middle school kid taking a plate at the Founder's Day Buffet. Now, if you've been to the Founder's Day Buffet, which I hope we're bringing that back. I, I don't know if we are, but praise Jesus if we're having the Founder's Day Buffet. I will be here. Um, I mean, it is like a, this glorious mountain of food on two tables. And there's some people, you know, who kind of have know the deal. And so they'll let all the amateurs go first. 
And then there's every now and then there's these guys, and you know who you are because I've hung out with you, is we'll kind of wait back until all the amateurs have passed through and are like, okay, let's really do a number on this buffet now. And what you'll do is you don't just get one plate, you have to double up. Because one plate is just too flimsy to really handle everything. And so what you do is as much as possible, you try to break all the laws of Newtonian physics with the amount of food that you put on your plate. So you're like, you know, this is like an eight inch plate. I think I can fit nine inches of food on an eight inch plate. And maybe, you know, could it possibly be higher than it is wider when I kind of put everything on there? And you go through and then you'll see some people hanging out and they're kind of inspecting other people and they're like, yeah, I respect you. You broke the laws of physics with the amount of food that you put on your plate. And what you're doing, the, the goal there when you're trying to get, you know, everything on is you're trying to leave as little blank space on your plate as possible. You're trying to leave as little empty space as you possibly can. Why? Because the goal is to fill it up to the hilt and even a little past that, if we're being honest. That's the same way most of the people I interact with on a weekly basis think about their time is they think, okay, I have 24 hours a day, I have seven days a week, I have 365 days a year. Let's think about how much activity and excitement and stimulation I can shoehorn into that amount of waking hours I have. And if I can have more waking hours, if I can sleep less, that's even better. And the way that you can kind of think if, if you're falling into this category is, do you ever find yourself being apologetic for having to sleep? Do you ever find yourself apologetic for not being able to be in two places at once? Or being engaged in multiple conversations or multiple text message conversations at once? For only being able to attend to one thing at a time? For being a human being? living in a body with finite capacity? Do you ever find yourself feeling sorry or guilty for being human? If so, I would suspect that maybe you have fallen into the trap of, of thinking that the enemy of a flourishing life is margin, uh, is blank space, is rest when actually what the Bible tells us is that the key to flourishing is rest. The key to flourishing life is this ability to say no. To say, okay, all this stuff, it can go this far and then there's gonna be this margin, there's gonna be this blank space, there's gonna be this edge where, where I say, you kind of like Gandalf on the bridge in Lord of the Rings, right? You shall not pass. You can't go any further because this is my time to rest. This is my time to quit. This is my time to stop. This is my time to recharge because I'm a human being. <laughs> I'm a creature. I'm not the limitless creator. I'm getting ahead of myself. But if you find yourself thinking, that sounds great to me, I, I would encourage you that, that and commend to you that maybe you could lean in to what the Bible has to say about the concept of worshiping God with our time. You see, the first four commands are all about worship of God, how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second half of the Ten Commandments, uh, most people believe, are about how to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
The fourth commandment in particular, I would say, is about how to worship God with your schedule, with your time. And I think this is a profoundly helpful and countercultural um, practice. There's this man, uh, Andrew Sullivan, who's kind of an early techno blogger guy and super involved in Twitter, super involved in all these different things. And, and he wrote an article that's entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being, where he talks about what he calls his distraction sickness, just being in, you know, divided in all these different ways in all these places at once. This man is not a Christian, but in his um, frantic searching for some kind of like humane way of living in the world, he stumbled upon this Christian, Judeo-Christian idea of the Sabbath. This is what he says. He said, I found that the Judeo-Christian tradition recognized something. It recognized a critical distance and tension between noise and silence, between just getting through the day and being able to get a grip on one's whole life. He says this, the Sabbath was a collective imposition of relative silence, a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. It helped define much of Western public life once a week for centuries, but just as modern street lighting has slowly blotted the stars from the visible skies, so too have cars and planes and factories and flickering digital screens combined to rob us of a silence that was previously regarded as integral to the health of the human imagination. We've been robbed of silence. This guy's not a Christian. And he's like, I feel like the world is robbing me of rest. The world is robbing me of silence, something that my soul needs. This is a wise man. He's saying, maybe this religion that I thought was so backward and oppressive actually has something meaningful to say about the way we're supposed to live our lives as created beings. I just think that's profound. When even unbelievers are saying there's something here that's good for the life of the world. So I would like us to just look briefly at this idea of an imposition of silence, not as an imposition but as a gift from God who loves us. And I want to look at it from um, kind of three vantage points. First, the resting God. Number two, God's resting people. And then three, I want to look at how Jesus is our rest. And the main point of this is that since, you know, if we want to learn how to inhabit our time in a way that actually brings abundant life and freedom, I would say we need to learn to sit under the Bible and what it says about God's rhythms of Sabbath rest. So, first, the resting God. If you look back in Exodus uh, 20, it gives the reason for God's command of Sabbath rest. It grounds it in creation. So if you're all curious about what part of the Old Testament uh, Exodus 20 is referencing, it's in Genesis 1, kind of the end of Genesis 1 through the beginning of Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 and 2 says this, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sorry, that was from, uh, (laughs) from Exodus. In Genesis, it says this, 
Genesis 1:31. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Then there was evening and morning, the sixth day. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So to understand what God is doing in Genesis, what it's talking about as the basis for uh, his people's resting in, in Exodus 20, you need to understand what's happening. There's these two words, but... Um, Stopping and resting. So the first thing is, is that we see in Genesis that God stops. Uh, and stop is this Hebrew word Shabbat, which is where the word Sabbath comes from. Shabbat just means to cease or to stop. Can you say it with me, class? Shabbat. Shabbat. Excellent. This is like, it's going to be kind of like a Sunday school. The last point's more like a sermon, but this is kind of like Sunday school. So after creating, God creates not a holy place. A lot of other gods in the ancient Near East had holy places, like holy mountains or holy temples or holy groves or, you know, springs or something like that. The God of the Bible creates and sets apart a holy, a holy time. What one uh, theologian says about this is, the God of the Bible isn't found in the world of space, in in the things that you can touch and see on a temple or a mountaintop or a monument. He's found in the world of time. What what Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us is that Yahweh, the Lord of the Bible, is the Lord of time. Everything has this, this pattern and this order. And this is the the fascinating thing. In contrast to all the other gods of the ancient Near East who needed their subjects to be constantly working and performing and jumping through hoops for them because the gods were so needy. You know, the gods needed people to make sacrifices to them. The gods needed people to be productive and like get stuff done for them. The God of the Bible is a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, who's limitless in his power and perfection, goodness, and glory. So God doesn't need to stop because he's exhausted. God doesn't need to stop um, because he's tired. And here's the other thing that's really interesting. He doesn't need us to stop. He's commanding and giving permission for us to stop. He's saying, I don't need you to stop. You need you to stop. So the God of the Bible is a God who invented the weekend. And in Genesis 1, you see this this pattern of forming and filling. Always what God is doing is he's kind of like setting apart a space and then he's filling that space with something, right? So he's like dividing, um, you know, the water from the land and then he's filling the water and the land with different creatures. You see that pattern all over the place. And then when he, um, you know, gives the creation mandate to Adam and Eve, he says what? Fill the earth and subdue it. So it's this idea that you go and form this, uh, you know, bring form 
to this formless creation, uh, bring fruitfulness to this creation that's kind of in chaos, bring order and structure and fruitfulness. And so one way of thinking about this idea of Shabbat or stopping is it's God setting apart a space, kind of setting apart a margin on that seventh day. But then after, you know, forming that space by stopping, kind of stopping this regular pattern of creation, but then, and then, uh, you know, setting apart this, this different type of activity, what does God do? Well, he doesn't just set it apart. He fills it with something. And the thing God fills that seventh day with is rest, which is another Hebrew word called menucha. Sorry to everyone in the front row, because you're going to get spit on. Can you say it? Menucha. Yeah, that's great. So menucha is this idea, not just of um, taking a break, but when it says God rested or God menuchad, this is what menucha means. Dan Allender writes this. Menucha is the Hebrew word for rest, but it's better translated as joyous repose, tranquility, or delight. God didn't rest in the sense of taking a nap or chilling out. Instead, God celebrates and delights in his creation. That's what rest means, to celebrate and delight in it. Did, I mean, you heard when you read Genesis. God looks at it, he looks at everything he's made, and he kind of sits back and he goes, oh, that's awesome. Yes, this is very good. So stopping and resting has this idea of making space and then filling that space with delight in what's been done. Looking back on what's been accomplished and going, yeah, that is, that is good. I can think of maybe a few times in my life, you know, God in his mercy, I think is helping me to stop and recognize these moments of menuha in my life. Moments where it just feels like, okay, I'm in the only place where I need to be right now. And it, it's like a mixture of, of contentment and delight and peacefulness. A lot of times for me, it, it tends to happen when we're on vacation, surprisingly enough, or, you know, or, or like a holiday. A lot of times when it's with people I love, um, I have this particular memory of being in the water with my youngest son, Gus, at the beach. And we were uh, staying with some friends. And uh, he's not my youngest. He's my only son. He is my youngest son. <laughs> my oldest child. We're waiting out in the water at the beach. And, um, you know, the waves are just big enough that it's kind of like, you know, like a wave pool at, at a water park or something. Like it's, it's uh, like kind of frightening and exciting <laughs> for the little kid and he's clinging to me, and he's cackling with laughter. And then I realize that I start laughing. And I'm not laughing because anything's funny, I'm just laughing because I'm so happy. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about Manuha. And the goodness of God is he says, I want you to have that, like once a week. Like, I give you permission to pursue that. I mean, that's delight. It's literally delightful. <laughs> so God models for us this idea of both stopping and delighting or stopping 
and resting. And then when you get to Mount Sinai, he reminds his new people who have just come out of slavery, a place of never stopping and never resting and suffering and no delighting. Instead, he brings them into this place where he says, this is how you're going to live now. This is how you're going to live counterculturally in the world. This is who you're going to be. You're going to be a resting people. So how does God kind of outline in Exodus what it means to be a resting people? And also, just, just for a second, why do you think God has to command this? I mean, if it's so good, if it's so delightful, if it you know, sounds so good to all of us, why do you think God makes it a command? I mean, you know, don't you? Even the things that are really good for us, that we know we should do, we find excuses to not do them. And so God is saying, I'm telling you to do this because you actually don't know how to love yourself and to love your neighbor the way that I made you to. And out of love, I'm giving you permission to say no. I'm commanding you to say no because I love you and because you need to love you and to love your neighbor, right? So what is God actually commanding here when he commands Sabbath rest? This woman, Marva Dawn, who I think is absolutely, everything she's written is incredible. She gives these four aspects of, of Sabbath rest. Briefly this, Sabbath means ceasing. That's, you know, like stopping from whatever the normal pattern of the week that you do this intentional stopping, this intentional um, putting down. So Again, without trying to be legalistic here, I think if we want to enter into the rest that God has, there has to be a sense in which you stop the normal pattern of life and you create a space where you just say, no, this is going to be something different today. Okay, so the stopping, but also there's resting. This is menuha, what we talked about. So you're, you're taking up um, a slower rhythm that's not about productivity, it's not a day uh, where there's to-do lists and alarms. It's a day of, of being, not doing. So ceasing, resting, and then I love this. Marva Dawn says, when you look at all the Sabbath celebrations in the Bible, there's, there's these other aspects too. Sabbath is about feasting. Now, the reason that sounds weird to us is we tend to think of holiness as purely about deprivation. Like most of us think, if you, if, I want to say like, what would, what would be a holy thing that you could do today? You would think of, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And you think, we think in terms of fasting instead of feasting. But what does the Bible say a holy day to the Lord looks like? I mean, remember what we read in Nehemiah? The priest read the law and the people were so guilt-stricken, they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? And so they, they, they start to, I don't know, maybe what I would be doing is you're so convicted and you think, well, I'm just going to make up for all the bad I've done by being super, super sorry. So I'm going to weep and mourn and I'm going to show God like, like how sorry I am. And what the priests say is, no, God has rescued you. God has accomplished your salvation. So here's what you're going to do. Here's the appropriate response to it rejoice. Don't weep. Don't mourn. This is a day of gladness. Drink the good wine, eat the good food. And if there's any among you in your community that can't do that, that doesn't have, you share with them. 
and you help them to rest. You help them to feast. You help them to celebrate. So it's this communal celebration. That's what this day looks like. I just think that's tremendous. So there's this element of of feasting, not just resting, but then also this this fourth element that Marvadon talks about is uh, not just ceasing, not just resting, not just feasting, but, but embracing. So you take up a, a different kind of rhythm on that day. You, you start to practice uh, different patterns and habits and rhythms of, of hospitality, of corporate worship, of, of mercy or service. Maybe you, you, you take up a, a new kind of uh, family routine. There's um, a story that, that I, I read in one of the books when I was studying this about how Jewish fathers would go around and before, as their kids were waking up, they would, they would put honey on their finger. And as they wake up on the Sabbath day, they would say, you know, welcome, it, you know, Sabbath, taste this. And the, the kids would, would um, immediately associate the Sabbath day with sweetness and joy and delight and celebration. One author that I love, he, uh, he was talking about creating Sabbath rhythms for his family, and he just makes huge stacks of pancakes with his kids. And that's the thing that he does every Sabbath day, that it feels like a celebration, that it feels like, you know, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving all wrapped up in one, and you get to do it, you know, every week. And not just you as an individual, but with with all of God's people and that we kind of help each other embrace this rhythm. So for us, if you're kind of convicted about this or you're curious about this, you're thinking, here are the two questions that I would just encourage you to ask as you think about uh, incorporating these patterns of Sabbath rest in your life. Just go, okay, is this particular thing that we're thinking about taking up either as a, you know, a group of roommates or as a group of friends or as a church community, is it rest and is it worship? You know, does it kind of refill and restore? Is there any way in which I'm, I'm putting a line down and I'm saying, okay, normal life, the normal concerns of life, it goes this far, but it can't go anymore. And are we willing to help each other, not kind of police each other's lives, but to help each other say no? And to give each other freedom to try this out and grow in this and learn to incorporate Sabbath rest in a way that works for you and your circumstances and your family right now. So finally, if we're going to be a resting people, we need to look at how Jesus is our rest. And, and, and just you know, briefly, if we want to learn Sabbath rest from Jesus, there's a couple principles that I think are important to know. And you can just, you know, jot these scripture references down if you want. But first in Matthew 5, 17, we see that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. He doesn't erase the Old Testament law. Jesus says this, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what Jesus is saying, he's, is he's saying there is a new way of living under God's law, but it's actually the old way. I'm giving the full intention. I'm showing you the heart between, behind God's Old Testament commands. And so you're going to live them out in such a way that you're going to embody the spirit of the law without these kind of trappings and add-ons that the Pharisees and the Sadducees added to it. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Now, um, in 
some of the Reformed tradition, when they talk about worship, sometimes people talk about elements and circumstances. Elements are the things that are commanded, that God commands us to do, and circumstances are just kind of the context. So, you know, prayer is something that's commanded in the Bible, but whether or not, you know, you pray out loud or pray silently or pray standing up or pray kneeling down, those are kind of circumstances. But the important thing is that you pray. So in the same way, I think Jesus is is trying to help us live out of the the spirit of this command, where also you see that there's a tremendous amount of, of liberty in the way that people take up and kind of learn this command. You see this in Matthew 12, verse 8 where Jesus shows us that mercy actually triumphs over judgment in God's kingdom. You you might remember this story. Jesus and his disciples are going through a grain field on the Sabbath. And I think because the disciples didn't have anything to eat, they start gleaning grain from the edges of the fields. So they're going through and they're picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees are saying, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus gets very impatient with the Pharisees. He says, haven't you read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? You know, they're working in in the temple and yet they're guiltless. Or didn't you remember how how David went in and he, he ate the bread when he was hungry that was consecrated, that's not lawful for him to eat? But guess what? It was lawful for him to eat because God is a merciful God. God understands that we have limited needs and capacities. And then he says this, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In another uh, account of that same uh, story from, from Mark, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so here's what I think Jesus tells us here is that the Sabbath was given to us to help us with our limited capacities. It was given to to, to help refresh humanity and give them rest, not to put extra burdens on humanity. And so if you find yourself in trying to keep this command and lean into this command extra burdened by it, the odds are that you may not actually be living out of the spirit of the command. Or if you find yourself preoccupied with the way other people are or are not keeping this command, you are not living out the heart of this command. What Jesus is actually saying to the Pharisees is, hey, like sitting up on that high horse and judging other people seems like a lot of work. You might want to stop working so hard (laughs) at watching other people on the Sabbath day. And respectfully, I think so many of us have a tendency to kind of judge how we're doing by looking at how other people are doing. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That is not the way in my kingdom. So he's, he's calling us to embrace this rest as a gift of a merciful and a loving God and to enable others to embrace and take up this gift. And then finally in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, we see that in Christ, in the gospel, rest is something that is not achieved. Rest, true rest is actually something that's received. Jesus says this in Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. Just hear these words as we close. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. 
Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Notice that word learn. Learning takes time. You know, we as Christians believe in this idea of progressive sanctification, which is this beautiful idea that God doesn't change us overnight. I mean, he justifies us overnight, but he sanctifies us over a lifetime of uh, success and failure and repentance and restoration and trying and failing. And Jesus is like, just come along for the ride. Just learn from me. Fail with me. Try again with me. Just be with me. <laughs> fail with me. Don't fail apart from me. And you'll never be lonely. I just think that's beautiful. You know, the religion of this world says, when I finally get this right, then I'll be lovable. Then I'll be acceptable to God. The gospel says, Jesus alone got this right. In him, you are loved. You are accepted. And through him, by faith in him, he will actually give you the power to change. So if there is something in your life right now that you are terrified of giving up to take up holy rest, I would encourage you to look at that thing, whatever it is, if it's some kind of schedule commitment that you've made, if it's, it's some kind of you know, family obligation or work obligation that you feel like is crowding out the edge of your plate, I would just ask you, is that thing actually the God of your life? Is that thing, is that obligation, is that habit, is that way of doing things, is that actually functioning as the default authority in your life that's calling the shots for you, for those you love, that's ordering your days, that's, that's commanding you how to spend your time? And would you please, would you please sin against the false gods of your life so that you can live a life of rest and peace in obedience to the God of rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, would you teach us um, to take up this idea of holy rest? Lord, would you help us uh, to see the unhealthy, inhumane patterns of living and working that we have really uncritically embraced? And to have the courage and the patience to learn how to live a different way. Lord, would you help us to find freedom and rest in you and in you alone? And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you alone have done the work, that you alone have accomplished what is necessary for the salvation of any and all who come to God through you. Lord, give us eyes to see you. Give us the faith to embrace you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.